we, we're going to slightly ambitiously attempt three chapters this morning, Exodus uh, 5 through 7, uh, but I'm just going to read uh, from Exodus 5, which is the passage printed in the sheets. Uh, what you need to know is that so far in the story, God's people, the Israelites, have been enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, and God has just begun to work in the, in the life of Moses, this man who's going to be the great leader of God's people. So God has met Moses at a burning bush. God has told Moses that he and his brother Aaron should go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that Pharaoh must let God's people go. Uh, and so as we get to uh, the beginning of our story today, our passage today, uh, Moses and Aaron are about to head in uh, to Pharaoh's palace and demand freedom. So let's hear the word of God as it comes to us this morning. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labour at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do your servants treat us like this? Or sorry, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw they were in trouble when they said, you shall no, by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. 
Let's pray. Lord God, Almighty, we pray this morning as we come before your face and hear your very voice, and then in your mercy you would make the meditations of all our hearts and the words of my mouth as I preach pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our God, our rock and our redeemer. Uh, this we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory's sake. Amen. Uh, who runs your life? Who runs your life? Who controls your life day to day, week to week? If you're a Christian, you know the right answer. Well, it's God, it's Jesus, he's my Lord, he's my saviour. But who really runs it? Uh, what drives you when you get out of bed in the morning? Uh, that question is at the heart of Exodus 5. Uh, in some ways, the story is relatively straightforward, isn't it? I want to walk through the story to make sure we're clear on it. Uh, and then we'll, we'll dive in deeper to see uh, what it's teaching us. Uh, the, the confrontation comes at last. We've been waiting for it all, all Exodus, really. Uh, finally, God and Pharaoh come face to face, as it were, although God is speaking through his servants, Moses and Aaron. Uh, so when they go uh, and give the, the command, that famous command uh, to Pharaoh down there in verse uh, one, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. The old song, you know, when Israel was in Egypt, and let my people go. Uh, that is God's word to Pharaoh. And there's a purpose. Uh, let them go so that they can go and worship me uh, out in the wilderness. Uh, a bit later, Moses clarifies, verse 3, uh, God has met with us, he says to Pharaoh, and he wants us to go three days journey. That's out to Mount Sinai where God met Moses on the burning bush, back to the same place. And there we're going to have this festival, this celebration, this worship service to the Lord. I don't think Moses is implying that afterwards they'll come back, by the way, nor is he trying to deceive Pharaoh. He's just saying it's going to take us three, three days, but let us go. Three days we'll go out to the wilderness. We'll get to Mount Sinai and we'll worship. That is God's command to us. And actually, if you don't let us go, well, it's strange, isn't it? Verse three, he's going to fall on us with pestilence and sword. God wants his people rescued so they can worship him. And if that doesn't happen, it's going to be plague and destruction. Moses had a taste of that already. If you were here last week, uh, you'll have seen right at the end of, of chapter four, uh, as Moses uh, heads back to, to give these uh, instructions to Pharaoh, God comes to his family and seems to be about to kill some of them at least because of their disobedience. Uh, God will be uh, revengeful on those who ignore him, Moses warns. But Pharaoh's having none of it, is he? Uh, Pharaoh... I see no reason why he, the great king, uh, he who, who saw himself as an embodiment uh, of the gods anyway, why should he uh, listen to the Hebrew God? Uh, verse two, who is this Lord? Remember that when you see Lord in capital letters, it's God's personal name. We saw it in, uh, a week or two ago in chapter three. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? Now, I don't think Pharaoh has never heard the name of the Hebrew God. He presumably knows the name just because there's tens, hundreds of thousands of Hebrews in his kingdom. He's probably heard the word Yahweh, but he just means, well, why should I acknowledge him? You've got your funny little slave God, that's fine. And if you want to believe in him in the quiet of your hearts, that's okay, but keep him private. Don't bring him to work and certainly don't let him interrupt your work for me. So no, says Pharaoh, 
In fact, he doesn't just refuse uh, the Hebrews' permission to go out and worship. Uh, He doubles down. He makes their work even harder. Uh, So verse 6. He gets the taskmasters in, these um, Egyptian taskmasters, slave masters, and says, right, here's the deal now. Uh, the, The Israelites, they still have to make the bricks, but they have to do it without straw. They'll have to go and find their own straw. But there's no relief on the number of bricks they must make. Same production levels, but they've got to source their own materials now. It's like saying to the doctors in the GP surgery, right, I want you to see the same number of patients each day, okay, cure the same number of sick people each day, but you're going to have to concoct your own medicines, okay, mix your own drugs. Says to the students, you write the same number of essays, hand in the same number of projects at school or at university, but you've got to chop your own trees, pulp your own paper. Uh, it is brutal. And unsurprisingly, uh, the Israelites can't do it. Uh, and so in verses 10 through uh, 14, that middle section of the passage we read, uh, the, the taskmasters explain to the Israelites what they've got to do. And the Israelite four men, so the kind of heads of Israel, uh, they just can't do it. They report Pharaoh's words, but they're unable to. Uh, and so in verse 14, uh, the, 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 at least the, the heads of the Israelite uh, clans, the four men, they're beaten savagely. And so they cry out. Uh, these foremen, these Israelite leaders go to Pharaoh and say, what are you doing? Why are you treating like us, us like this? But Pharaoh is relentless. Verse 17, you're idle, you're lazy. Get back to work. None of this talk of worshipping your God. None of this talk of freedom. None of this talk of going. So they're dispatched from Pharaoh's presence. Uh, they go outside, they bump into Moses and Aaron who are waiting, verse 20, outside. And they complain to Aaron and Moses, what are you doing? You've just made life worse. It's bad enough to start with being slaves for Pharaoh, making bricks. Now we're having to make bricks and find the straw. And Moses in turn, verse 22 and 23, complains to God. God, what are you doing? It was bad enough originally. Now you've sent me and nothing has happened. Life has just got worse. Well, it's a dramatic story, I suppose. Interesting enough, if you're into those kind of stories. But what has it got to do with us? The temptation is to say, not very much, isn't it? You read Romans or an epistle and you can see application really quickly. You read the Gospels and you can, you can see how God is feeding you through them. But, but a story like this, what are you to do with it? What I want to suggest to you is that the reason uh, that we struggle to apply stories like uh, Exodus 5 through 7, in fact, to us, is that we fall into a few traps, believed a few lies. And the first thing we believe, which is a huge mistake and very dangerous, is that Pharaoh is dead. But it's very important you realise Pharaoh isn't dead. Okay, it's the first thing this morning. Pharaoh isn't dead. John, do you hear that? Pharaoh is not dead. Now, I'm not going totally mad. Okay? I'm aware that the Pharaoh, whoever he was in these days, and we don't quite know um, which Pharaoh he was in the big list of Egyptian kings, he himself is died. He's been mummified and buried in some tomb in Egypt. Okay? All this action took place about three and a half thousand years ago, probably about 1400 BC, hard to know exactly. He is dead, but when we look at him more closely, we see that he lives on. He dies, and yet he lives. Uh, what do we know about Pharaoh from this passage, if we look more carefully? Well, the most obvious thing is he's a ruler, isn't he? Okay, Pharaoh is the ruler. He's the king. It's a title. It's not a name. Uh, it's, it's like king or queen uh, or Caesar for the Romans. It's a title. 
So if we're looking for Pharaoh today, we're looking for someone who is a ruler. And we're also looking for someone who, in verse, as verse 2 shows us, doesn't acknowledge the authority of God. Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice? As I said a moment ago, it's not that he doesn't know the name Yahweh, but he doesn't recognise his authority. So we're looking for some ruler, uh, some king, some prince, who, who doesn't think that they should listen to the Lord God. In other words, we're looking for some ruler who doesn't bow at the name of Jesus, who doesn't believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, our final kind of clue for this uh, identikit uh, is that we're looking for a ruler who, well, who enslaves God's people. Uh, that is Pharaoh's big game in this chapter, isn't it? In fact, that's what he's been doing all the way through the book of Exodus. Okay, he brutalizes and enslaves God's people. Where is Pharaoh? Or perhaps you've found him. It's like that game of guess who, isn't it? You get the clues and you work out who it is. Uh, Pharaoh in Exodus 5 uh, is a picture of Satan, as he's called elsewhere. Uh, Some of the names of Satan uh, given uh, in the Bible, uh, particularly the New Testament, uh, are all to do with ruling. So he's called the ruler of this world by Jesus. And that's right, that's Jesus speaking. Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world, this present age. Uh, John calls him, uh, sorry, Paul calls him the God of this age even. Not meaning he's equal with God, but he is this kind of spiritual being, the God of this age. Uh, Elsewhere in Ephesians 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. We don't know lots about Satan in the Bible. We don't get told... Uh, too many details, but we do know that he is some sort of incredibly powerful, originally noble, uh, spiritual being, angelic being, we might even say, who has fallen. Uh, he is somebody who fits the second piece of the jigsaw too. Okay, he doesn't acknowledge God's authority. Uh, he is in rebellion and he's led many other fallen angels with him. Uh, and his big plan is to enslave God's people. Uh, ever since the, the beginning of the Bible, that's been the case, hasn't it? I think back to the Garden of Eden. Satan, the serpent, slithers up to Adam and Eve and tries to persuade them to move away from serving God and instead to live for themselves and therefore ultimately to live for Satan. Uh, in Exodus 5, the, the clash isn't really between Pharaoh and Moses, but between God and Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron are just the spokesmen. It's between God and Pharaoh, and therefore between God and Satan. In fact, if you've seen pictures of the uh, pharaohs or seen their kind of um, uh, grave masks, they often have a serpent on their heads. It's not even subtle, is it? God and Satan have been at war since the Garden of Eden. Uh, Calvin's got this wonderful uh, take on this way. He says that Satan realises he can't actually harm God. Even Satan knows that. God is almighty, omnipotent, he's beyond time and space. Satan, although he's hugely powerful, he can't, can't even scratch God's toes. So what does he do? Well, instead he attacks God's images. That's us, human beings. He wants to spoil God's plan and he wants to destroy us. Now, if you're not a Christian, I realize this sounds really weird. Do you believe in Satan? 2021, you believe in Satan? It sounds so strange, doesn't it? This spiritual being... And part of the reason it sounds strange to us, at least, is we've born into the myth of scientism, 
uh, that says the only things that are real are things that you can discover with the tools of science. So essentially, if you can't touch it, taste it, see it, smell it, hear it, it's just not there. But of course, that's to prejudge the question. If you say the only things that exist are things that are available to our physical senses, albeit amplified by all sorts of equipment, then you've already, before you started, have ruled out any idea of there being spiritual beings. Satan's fine with that. A film back in the 90s, it was a bit of a violent film, but um, a clever film nonetheless. Uh, ended with the line, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he, ne- he doesn't exist. That's, what, that's all the devil wants. Convince you he doesn't exist, but draw you away from God. Even as Christians, we fall into that trap, don't we, of just, just being sleepy spiritually. We forget a spiritual war is raging. The devil prowls around like a lion, Peter says. Pharaoh is not dead. He wants to take you away. He is active now in your life. Active this morning, trying to distract you as you go to church. Active right now, distracts you from listening to God's word. Active the rest of the day where he tries to pull you away from full obedience. Pharaoh isn't dead. And therefore, secondly, slavery isn't over. Slavery isn't over. Now, sadly, that's true very literally, isn't it? Okay, that there are awful things that go on in the world and even in our own country. Every now and again, they come to light. The horrors of, of sex trafficking uh, or um, uh, people smuggled into the, the country and working uh, on farms with no pay. There are all sorts of horrendous situations around the world and things that we ought to be concerned about as Christians, things we ought to care about. But, but that isn't quite what I mean, not first and foremost. Uh, Exodus 5 reminds us that slavery isn't over, but the slavery is not just the physical slavery, but the spiritual slavery of sin. That is how Satan ensnares us. Uh, Look at the contrast, this clash between God and Satan. Look look down at verses 17 and 18. Uh, This is Pharaoh speaking uh, to the the leaders of, of Israel who've come to ask for freedom. Uh, he, Pharaoh, said, you're idle, you're idols. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice the Lord. See, that, that was the, the Israelites echoing God's command. God said, let my people go and sacrifice to me, worship me. And what does Pharaoh say? Verse 18, go now and work. Two goes right next to each other. Okay, it's a deliberate clash. God says, let my people go and worship. Pharaoh says, no, go and work for me. In fact, even that word work, verse 18, go and work. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a word with more nuance than just sort of build bricks. It's the same word God uses for what the Israelites are meant to do for him. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can flick back to chapter 3, verse 12, if you like, but I'll read it to you because we haven't got uh, Bibles on the chairs today. Uh, when, when, when God gives the message to Moses... Uh, that he's going to set their, their, his people free. He says this, Exodus 3 verse 12, I will be with you. This will be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. Or some translations, worship God on this mountain. It's the work word. It's the same word. Or chapter 4 verse 23, I say to you, let my son go, my son being Israel, that he may serve me. Same word, work for me. Worship me. The work, serve, worship word is the same 
and, and that's kind of the point. The choice for the Israelites in, in Exodus 5 is, are they going to worship and work for Satan, for Pharaoh, or for God? Uh, both Old and New Testament, worship can be used in a narrow sense of what we're doing this morning. We gather together. There's this focused sense of worship. But it's also about all of our lives as well. It's true in the New Testament, but it's also true in the Old. All of our lives is meant to be in service of God. As Bob Dylan saying, you've got to serve somebody. None of us are free. In other words, we aren't actually going to be slaves of somebody. It's just a question of who. Now, children, almost every Disney film I've seen uh, begins with a prince or a princess being told by his, his, you know, their father, um, they've got to marry. So I think Cinderella starts, doesn't it, with, with Prince Charming being told he's got to find a wife, got to find a princess. Uh, or Aladdin, Jasmine, the princess, got to find a husband, a prince to marry. And the only choice is who? Who are you going to marry? But it's like that with us and God. Who are we going to live for? Who are we going to serve? It's either going to be God or, frankly, it's going to be the devil. That's, that's how stark the choice is. Now, at this point, we need to, we need to be a little bit careful. So if you're a Christian here this morning, where are you in the story? Who are you in this story in Exodus 5? Okay, Pharaoh is, is Satan. You're trying to find yourself. Where, where do you look? Well, the, the obvious place to look is to the Israelites, isn't it? But remember, at this stage, the Israelites are still totally captive to Pharaoh. They're not free. Now, that is not true of you if you're a Christian. Because when Jesus rescued you, when he died for you on the cross, he broke the power of sin. And when he poured his spirit upon you and brought you to faith... You were set free from the power of sin. So nowhere in the New Testament are Christians described as those who are slaves to sin. Rather, you are those whom the Son has set free, to use Jesus' language uh, in John 8. Uh, Or you are those uh, over whom the power of sin has been broken. You have died to sin and you are now, in fact, slaves to righteousness to use Paul's language in Romans 6. So what we need to understand about sin is it's got three kind of, three stages. There's a history of your being saved from sin. Three Ps. Uh, We've already been saved from the penalty of sin. When Jesus dies on the cross, uh, he pays the penalty. And that is totally done and dusted. That's what we need to keep reminding ourselves from. We are totally free. We will never be punished for our sin. That's in the past. Happened 2,000 years ago. One day in the future, when we go to heaven, we'll be free from the presence of sin. Because heaven is a place where there is no sin left. There won't even be sin in our hearts. It'll be totally gone. For now, we're slowly being freed from the power of sin. But it's still a battle. So the decisive victory has been won. I'll come back to this in a moment. But the decisive victory is won. You're not a slave to it anymore. You don't have to sin. But you're not totally free from it. Uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, used the illustration of uh, Christians being like people trying to write letters. Children, you ever try to write a letter? And it's, it's, like, it's like Satan is, or, or the sin that, that dwells within us still, is, is at our elbow. So we're trying to write really nicely. You know, dear granny, thank you so much for my new jumper at Christmas. And Satan's at our elbow, knocking it all the time. Our indwelling sin that remains knocking it, so we keep going wrong. We so we don't live perfect lives. Sin still remains. 
And therefore, when we read Exodus 5, we're not totally in the same place as the Israelites, entirely enslaved. But because Pharaoh still lives, Pharaoh isn't dead, because Satan is still alive today, there are times where we can still forget that we've been freed from the power of sin and fall back into it. So we need to be aware of his traps. The best illustration I've, I've heard of this, it's an old one, so forgive me if you've heard it before, maybe even from me, but it is the idea that uh, we're slaves who've been set free. So imagine this back in the day when, when slavery was still legal uh, and you're a slave uh, to a, a lord or something and then suddenly one day you're, you're set free. Okay, you've spent all your life, 40 years, say, serving this lord. Every day you get up, you make his breakfast, okay, you clean his shoes, press his clothes, get his horse ready. Everything is done in his service. And then one day the, the law is passed and you're set free. And so the next week you're walking along the street and this lord, your, your master, your former master, walks towards you and he shouts, over here, you, boy, you, girl, get here. Fetch my horse, clean my shoes, bring me food. Now, because you've had 40 years of, yes, sir, yes, sir, straight away, sir, your first reaction may well be, yeah, of course, yes, sir, and off we go again. But in those circumstances, what needs to happen? You don't need to be set free again. You are free. What that poor slave needs to remember is they're now free. Well, that is a picture of the Christian. You have been freed from the power of sin, but you forget. We forget. And that's why the, the, the first command in, in a book like Romans, when dealing with the indwelling sin, the sin that remains, is not kill it, beat it, stop sinning, but count yourself dead to sin. Remember that Christ has broken the power of sin. Remember you're free. And once you remember you're free, well, then you can get to work trying to kill it off. So what do we see about the, the tactics of Satan in chapter five that still might ensnare us? Well, look what sin does. The purpose of sin, we might say, the purpose of this slavery, what Satan tries to tempt us back towards. Uh, verse nine, it's, it's about two things. First of all, is distraction. See what Ferris says? Uh, Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labour at it and pay no regard to lying words. Satan's plan is to distract you from what Pharaoh, i.e. Satan, calls lying words. What's he talking about? What are those lying words? Well, the the words of the gospel that Moses has just preached. Let my people go. I am for you, says God. That's what Pharaoh wants the slaves to be distracted from. I don't want them hearing about a God who's going to rescue them and save them. So make them work harder. What is it that most distracts you from the good news of Jesus? What is, the most, what is it that most distracts you from wholehearted discipleship? Satan stands behind that. I mean, it might be something explicitly sinful okay, that you know is bad, an addiction to alcohol or pornography or whatever it might be. But it might be something that's sort of okay, perfectly good thing, but it's become so big in your life it is distracting you, filling up all your time. I'm just too busy to pray. I'm just too busy to get to church. I'm just too busy to... Satan is about distraction, but also about destruction. This whole issue with the, no straw in the bricks. He wants to work you harder and harder and harder. Pharaoh doesn't care that he's going to break his slaves. In fact, in verse 14, uh, even when they can't perform, they're beaten. See that? They're beaten. Why have you not done it? Why have you not succeeded? 
So alongside asking yourself what most distracts you and seeing Satan's shadowy presence behind it, ask yourself what most crushes you in life? What destroys you? What is working you into the ground? Because one of the main ways that Satan gets at us and tries to, 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 if you like, pull the good news out of our hearts and minds is by getting, getting us to live really for other gospels, for kind of worksy gospels. He drives us to work harder and harder at various projects. Now, it's not very likely for the people in this room or watching on the live stream, it's not very likely that he's going to want you to, or turn you into a Satanist. You know, kind of black masses and the occult and all this sort of stuff. No, Pharaoh works through taskmasters. You see that time and again in the passage, three or four times we talk, talk about the taskmasters. Pharaoh is this sort of big guy off stage in the palace, but he works with these taskmasters. Well, so too Satan. You've probably never met Satan. I mean, there's only one of him. There's billions of people in the world for him to give his attention to. So he works through all sorts of, he's got other demons. He works through all sorts of different projects. And the idea is to crush and destroy you. So you get obsessed with your career. It distracts you. And you start believing that the only way you can be happy is if you succeed in your career. So you work harder and harder. But you can never quite do enough. And so it crushes you, destroys you. That's because the world works on works principles, not on grace, but on works. Try harder. Or you believe the only way you'll be happy is if you're beautiful, as you try and get thinner and fitter and, and more attractive. Harder and harder, you have to work, and it just crushes you. That'll do for Satan. He doesn't mind if you're not offering sacrifices to him, as long as it's crushing you into the ground, destroying you and distracting you from wholehearted service. Satan is cleverer than you and me. There's a great preacher in America, Donald Gray Barnhouse. And he was in Philadelphia, probably about 30, 40 years ago now. Uh, he's now dead. And he, he wants to ask the congregation, look, what, what would happen if Satan took over Philadelphia? I mean, ask yourself that. If, if Satan took over Leeds, what would Leeds look like? And so you start thinking, well, murders on the street, violence, stealing, uh, pornography everywhere, sexual morality, drunkenness. And Barnhouse says, no, no, no. I'll tell you what happened. Uh, the children would be smartly dressed and say please and thank you, good morning sir, good morning ma'am. The streets would be tidy, the schools would be full, the economy would be blooming, and the churches would be empty and Christ would be denied. Satan doesn't care whether you turn into a hell's angel or all the sweetest, nicest uh, human being on the planet. As long as... He keeps you away from this gospel of God as long as he keeps you away from Christ. Ask yourself, what is distracting you? And is there something that is destroying you? Somewhere you're finding your identity, your, your sense of worth, or your image, your career, your wealth, whatever it might be, your relationships. Satan stands behind them in order to pull you back from enjoying the grace of Christ. Well, is this passage just a warning? No, there's hope too. As we finish, I'll watch very quickly on chapter six and seven. Don't worry, <laughs> it'll be very quick. Okay, Pharaoh is still alive. Pharaoh isn't dead. Slavery isn't over. Thirdly and finally, Christ has conquered. Christ has conquered. Or if you like, Christ is the greater crocodile. How's that for a sermon point? Okay, Christ is the greater crocodile. You've gone to sleep, there you can wake up. Children, so you could draw on the notes. Christ is the greater crocodile. Uh, why do I say that? Well, there are 
that there's two bits of good news, some promises and some pictures in chapter 6 and 7. We're necessarily going to be really quick on them. Uh, there are promises. So in chapter 6, God comes and says, in response to Moses saying it's all gone wrong, says, no, I am going to rescue you. I will be with you. He gives seven times. He says, I will, I will, I will. I will redeem you. I will bring you out. I will take you to be my people. I will bring you to the promised land. Trust God's promise. If you're being pulled back into distraction, destruction, idolatry, or just plain out sin, the slavery, remember God's promise. He will do it. He doesn't say to you this morning, get yourself free, get yourself to heaven or you're going to regret it. He says, I will get you there. And there's this paradox, this strange thing where the the more you can believe that it's grace that will do it, God that will do it, the more actually you'll be able to walk and run towards the goal. The more you feel you've got to do it, the more you'll be crushed. Trust God, he will do it. And he'll do it through... Well, I could have said a greater Aaron, but a greater crocodile is more fun. In chapter six, if you've got it open, you'll see a genealogy, uh, one of those lists of names. And actually, it's focusing not on Moses, who's normally the kind of hero, but on Aaron, his older brother. Aaron is the spokesman. In that sense, he's the prophet. And in this genealogy, we learn that he's a Levite. That is, he's going to be a priest. In fact, he's going to be the head of the priests. And right in the middle of it, uh, he gets married. And he marries a woman, Elishaba. It's kind of Elizabeth in Hebrew. And she is from the tribe of Judah, which is the kingly tribe. So strangely, in this one man, Aaron, and his family, you've got someone who's kind of a prophet and kind of a priest and kind of a king. And it's a little picture of Christ. When Christ comes on the scene, Christ that means anointed, he picks up all those roles. And he's the one you need to go when you feel like you're slipping back under Pharaoh's power. He is a priest who can cleanse you, forgive you, and change you on the inside. He is a king who has the power to destroy all your enemies, including sin and Satan. He's a prophet who will speak. So go to his word. And in fact, Aaron then goes to confront Pharaoh with Moses. And Aaron's told to take his staff, his stick, and to throw it down in front of Pharaoh. Now, Moses has already done this in front of the elders. Do you remember that? Moses had to go to his own people, the Israelites, throw his stick down, and his stick became a snake. But in chapter 7, Aaron goes in front of Pharaoh, rather than Israel, throws his staff down, and it becomes, it doesn't become a snake. Okay, it doesn't become a snake. It doesn't, it's not the same word as, as when Moses' stick became a snake. Instead, it becomes, well, it's the word in the Bible often translated dragon. I downgraded it to crocodile. If you like, Christ is the greater dragon. It's a word for a, a dragon, possibly a kind of crocodile, if you want to domesticate it. But it's this great creature. And, and actually, Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. Okay, there, are, there is dark magic. Okay? Satan can do weird stuff. I don't think we have to believe it's a trick or something. But Aaron's crocodile, Aaron's dragon, Aaron's dinosaur, if you like, gobbles up Pharaoh's. It is a sign that he is stronger, that through this man, God will conquer. Christ will and has crushed Satan. He crushed him initially at the cross, and one day he'll finish him off when he returns. Satan's power is gone, it's broken, and it's even broken in your hearts. And so the thing you need to do, the only thing you need to do is listen. Down there in chapter 5, one last time. Remember, Pharaoh wants to distract God's people from hearing the words of freedom, those gospel words. Verse 9, 
Make sure they pay no regard to lying words. That's the gospel. Instead, what do you have to listen to? Well, look at 5 verse 13. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day. Uh, Or verse 19, same thing again. You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. The word task, task there, the the word actually, task, is the word word. It's the same word uh, used up uh, in verse 9 of the lying words. In other words, it's it's about who you're going to listen to. Are you going to be crushed by the words that Satan speaks to you each day? Do you see how the emphasis on day by day by day each day? Are you going to come under his burden? You must be beautiful. You must be successful. You must work harder. You must succeed. You must find a boyfriend. You must find a girlfriend. You must be good. You must be perfect. Or instead, are you going to listen daily to God's views of freedom? I have done it. I've paid for your sin in Jesus. I've broken the power of sin in your heart. You are free. You don't need to go back to it. You don't need to find strength in yourself. There is no strength. You've fallen 10,000 times. That's okay. I still love you. Because it's grace, not works, when we come to God. That is why we come to God's word, ideally, each day. Because Satan will preach at us each day. He'll preach at you through the TV or your family or your colleagues or your parents. He will preach at you, work, 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 work. Distract, 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 distract. He will try to destroy, 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 destroy. But God comes and says, I love you as unconditional. My power is greater than his. Here again from Jesus, I've laid down my life for you. I've gobbled up Satan. I'm the greater crocodile, the greater power, the greater dinosaur, the greater dragon. Listen to me and find rest. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, all you are burdened. Take my yoke upon you, serve me. And actually there you'll find freedom. Because his plan for your life is one for blessing, not curse. He needs nothing from you. He's the great I am, the Yahweh, the one who doesn't need you as a slave, unlike Pharaoh who needs you to build his city. He doesn't want to take from you, he just wants to give. His laws that he's given you, his pattern of life is to give to you. His paths are ways of righteousness and life. This is the battle. Pharaoh is not dead. Who will you listen to? It is the battle, but it's a battle that's been won. So listen to his voice day by day and rejoice in his grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so quick to listen to Pharaoh, so quick to come again under the burden of the law, under the enslavery of idols. We're so slow to believe that you are for us and that your grace is free, your love is free. Thank you again for that reminder this morning. Please, we we see that Christ has conquered, that he is for us. Please, we hear your promise. You will set us free. You will bring us home to the promised land. You will free us once and for all from the presence of sin. Father, for those of us who've slipped into particular sinful patterns, again, remind us that we, we no longer need to walk in them, that Christ has the power. For those of us crushed by... At the demands of the world, again, would we find our primary identity in knowing that we are your children, and that by grace. Father, empower us and remind us of our freedom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.